Hello, good evening, and welcome to Gray Matters, your weekly current events and media analysis program. My name is Jim Dwyer, and that was a little bit of an 80s rock block there to uh, serve as a link, or palate cleanser perhaps, if you will, between uh, the Daily Sports Report and Gray Matters. I'll be going solo today. Dick Whaley is across town. Uh, helping get a new business up and running, which is always good to hear. Well, it's the first show of the new year, so happy new year to everybody out there. It's 2016. Uh, brace yourself, gird your loins, as it were, for 10 months and seven days of nonstop ridiculousness. Uh, otherwise known as the United States presidential election. Uh, if you haven't yet seen the new Donald Trump ad, uh, it's a laugh riot. They were screening it today on the uh, television this afternoon, and uh, it, it literally made me burst out loud with laughter. Um, I can't see how it's going to appeal to anybody, but the candle-powered intellect um, certainly it will play right into the hands of ISIL who've already used, uh, Trump speech, stump speech, uh, clips in their recruitment videos. And speaking of ISIL, I'll have a little, uh, article from Patrick Coburn here in a moment about them. Um, so of course, Trump didn't spend any money at all on advertising in 2015. Why would he need to? He's a household name. He's a television personality, and uh, his penchant for blurting out uh, crude and offensive banalities uh, has rendered him good TV. So he hasn't need to shell out any of his many millions of dollars uh, for publicity, but uh, apparently he's going to be dropping a couple million uh, a month. Maybe it's a week. I can't remember exactly uh, in both Iowa and New Hampshire. And, you know, that right there in a nutshell is exactly what's wrong with uh, elections in the United States is it's simply it's a spending game. And the uh, decision made by the Supreme Court a couple of years back and the so-called uh, People United, uh, Citizens United, uh, has just been a major setback for uh, democracy in this country. And uh, we've always known that money has bought votes back in the old days. Uh, the reason why you can't buy alcohol uh, on election days, in, still in some regions of the country, but certainly back in the day, uh, was because it was common practice for uh, the uh, apparatchiks of politicians to go through town and, hey, I'm buying drinks if you're voting for my candidate. Um, just another way to buy votes. Now they're bought on a much higher level than that, not the actual individual voters, but the whole practice itself has been turned into an enterprise. Um, a lot of money to be made in the broadcasting of uh, specious advertising. And so that's why I say brace yourselves. It's going to be almost 11 months of torment. And I think the entire uh, the uh, intent is to... Uh, 
actually discourage people from voting to force people to go whatever throw their hands up and say i give up i just can't stand to think about it anymore who cares uh but we all know that uh voting's important even though it may not work as well as we'd like um you do have to be an informed citizen and that's why uh, one of my New Year's resolutions is to read more. I've always been a big reader. Dick Whaley and I, both especially Dick, uh, plows through the books and articles and so forth. Uh, there never seems to be enough time in the day to get the reading done that uh, you'd like or perhaps even need to do. Uh, but certainly that's one of my goals uh, for the new year is to read more books, particularly, uh, and not just historical stuff but uh it's also important to keep yourself spiritually refreshed with good literature and so uh, one of the uh, books i've uh, recently picked up with a little holiday money and look forward to reading is a thing called thirst by mahmoud dalabatabi he's an iranian writer and this is a fictional account of a journalist uh, during the Iran-Iraq war being charged with the responsibility of writing a report uh, about the conditions in a military prison. Uh, certainly, although that war is over, its uh, final body count was cataclysmic, wiping out a, almost an entire generation of young men in both countries. Uh, of course, the Reagan administration played both sides off the other and sold to both sides, as we know, uh, despite all sorts of prohibitions on uh, putting weapons into the hands of uh, Iran at that time. Uh, so this looks like an interesting book, and uh, certainly you don't get many opportunities to read uh, the works of an Iranian writer. And uh, for that matter, uh, there's some good Iranian films, but... I'll save that one for another time. Uh, later tonight, or possibly tomorrow, we will get some more uh, details on an executive action that uh, President Obama is going to put forward, uh, trying to find some ways to close loopholes, allowing people who aren't properly licensed to sell weapons. And I think we should start calling these weapons of mass destruction. I'm talking about automatic weapons, uh, assault rifles, and so forth. I'm not going to go into any numbers and statistics today. We've done that on many a program before. Uh, but it's very clear that the uh, devastating impact that uh, America's gun culture has had on our lives. Um, and so I look forward to hearing what these details may be. Uh, that's of course, going to cause uh, a lot of people on the far right to say, I told you Obama was coming for our guns. Here he comes now. And there's probably going to be a spike in gun sales as a result of this. And there will be all sorts of people uh, saying that uh, the feds are coming to take my guns. Although I am one who would favor a buyback program in which people would be fully compensated for their uh, foolish purchases. Um if only other foolish purchases could be so uh, easily redeemed. Uh, but assault rifles are not for hunting. They're not for self-defense. They're for the uh, weak of heart, <laughs> I'll say, uh, since it's the dinner hour. Um, and uh, they're for mass murder. And so, therefore, I feel strongly that they should be 
classified as uh, weapons of mass destruction. Uh, so I, I look forward to hearing about that uh, tomorrow, and we'll probably talk more about that next week. Uh, also, uh, last week, Seattle uh, got clearance from judges to uh, go forward with laws that they passed regarding the uh, taxation of ammunition. Uh, long suggested as another potential way around the uh, language of the Second Amendment, which uh, allows firearms. Uh, doesn't say anything about bullets. And, of course, uh, the great uh, now-retired Senator Carl Levin from the state of Michigan here uh, proposed the idea of taxing ammunition quite some time ago. Uh, we'll see how this works out in Seattle. I think that would be another fine concept to explore on a nationwide basis. Speaking of right-wingers armed to the teeth for no particular good reason, uh, I wonder how it's all going to play out in Oregon, where the uh, ranchers have uh, decided in protest. Uh, a couple of ranchers were found guilty of arson. They set fire to some land that uh, they wanted to burn off an invasive species, they claimed. Uh, the fire spread to federal land, which is a wildlife refuge, and, of course, the long history of ranchers and their disregard for public welfare and uh, national law is uh, easy enough to trace your way back through. Um, of course, ranchers sometimes were victimized by the railroads, which were the really big money. But uh, ranchers are no small potatoes when it comes to money. Uh, there is big money in that. Uh, but these guys have decided to... Uh, hold themselves up in a federal building, and although the FBI is currently saying they want the protest uh, and the standoff, rather, to uh, end peacefully, uh, they kind of have to say that. Uh, I hate to say this, but uh, there is a very strong likelihood that if this group who had taken up armed residency in a federal building were, oh, say, radical hippies or... Uh, African-Americans, that the federal agents would already have busted down the doors and cleared out the mess, peacefully or not. Certainly Fred Hampton in Chicago did not get the benefit of, uh, well, we want this to end peacefully. Uh, federal agents shot him in his bed with the uh, help of the Chicago police. So uh, different standards for different kinds of so-called perpetrators. What can you say about that? Well, uh, in the interests of uh, not rendering this program an entire monologue, uh, let's listen to a brief song uh, from one of the year's better records. This is Joanna Newsom, and this is something called Same Old Man, a song that the Holy Modal Rounders uh, had on their very first record. So, engineers, let's hear a bit. Standing in the rain in the Macintosh Same old lady standing in the rain The thought of New York was going
Joanna Newsom there with uh, Same Old Man from her album Divers, uh, something you've probably heard a little bit of here on WCBN and the music programming, a very fine record, one of my favorite from 2015. And uh, thanks to Miles and Tex for uh, making that happen. Well, let's continue now with some uh, news here and some commentary. Uh, These uh, words from Patrick Coburn who's writing in the counterpunch.org site. And this is how ISIS learns from its defeats. We'll just read this short article. The war in Iraq may become more like the war in Afghanistan over the coming years. ISIS forces in ISIS forces in fixed and identifiable positions cannot withstand ground assaults backed with intense air attacks by the US Air Force or in the case of the Syrian army by the Russians. The last extreme fundamentalist Sunni state in the wider Middle East found this out in 2001 when U.S. airstrikes in support of the numerically smaller Northern Alliance overthrew the Taliban in Afghanistan. Like the Afghan Taliban, ISIS may progressively revert to guerrilla war in which it can best use its highly committed and well-trained fighters without suffering heavy losses. ISIS is coming under growing military pressure from its many enemies on many fronts. The Iraqi army, supported by U.S. airstrikes, has recaptured Ramadi, the city that ISIS fighters took last May in their biggest victory of 2015. At the opposite border of the self-declared caliphate, the Syrian Kurds are threatening ISIS's hold north of Aleppo and on those parts of northern Syria where it is still in control. Could it be that the tide has turned finally and is irreversibly against ISIS? Everywhere it is fighting against ground forces backed by air power, which means that it suffers heavy casualties while opposing troops are unscathed. This was demonstrated during the four-and-a-half-month siege of the Syrian Kurdish city of Kobani, in which ISIS lost an estimated 2,200 men, killed mostly by bombs and missiles. The city was 70% destroyed, by, and the same may be true of Ramadi, which has been hit by some 600 airstrikes since July. The first half of 2015... Uh, found ISIS uh, had several advantages that it has now lost or is in the process of losing. At that time, it had easy access to Turkey at the Tal Abyad, a border crossing point, which the Syrian Kurdish People's uh, Protection Units, that's a mouthful, the Syrian Kurdish People's Protection Units, or the YPG, captured in June. It can be It can still move people and supplies across a narrow strip of the frontier west of the Euphrates, but the Syrian Democratic Forces, who are, in fact, the YPG slightly diluted by Sunni Arabs and Christians, seized the October Dam on the Euphrates on the 23rd of December, thus threatening ISIS's whole position north of Aleppo. Russian air support for the Syrian army means that it is now far more difficult for ISIS to win easy victories, such as capture of uh, such as its capture of Palmyra in May. Russian airstrikes do not mean that Bashir al-Assad is going to win, but they do mean he is 
unlikely to lose. ISIS's successes in 2014 stemmed in large part from the weakness of its enemies, who disintegrated when attacked by much smaller ISIS forces. It had been conceivable, if not likely, that Assad's rule would crumble under pressure and Islamic State would be the beneficiary. This is no longer the case. Russian intervention damaged ISIS and the other jihadi groups in another way. It energized U.S. military action in Iraq and Syria. Washington made it clear that it did not intend to cooperate with Russia to destroy ISIS, but superpower rivalry in the Cold War did not always have negative effects, and the U.S. has increased the weight of its airstrikes against ISIS in support, primarily, of the Iraqi army and the Syrian and Iraqi Kurds. In addition, airstrikes, combined with the fall in the price of oil, have largely destroyed the ISIS oil economy, once uh, one of its main sources of revenue. But it's too easy to imagine that these defeats and setbacks mean that ISIS is in terminal decline. It is true that there is an implicit, if defiant, acknowledgement that things are not going well in a speech by Caliph Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi made public on the 26th of December. He said, quote, don't worry, O Muslims, your state is fine and expanding every day. And with every harshness that comes upon it, it spits out the hypocrites and, ag and agents and becomes more firm and strong. That's a quote Donald Trump might want to use, I guess. Uh, back to Coburn's article. Uh, presumably the expansion he is speaking of, assuming that the reference is not purely rhetorical, refers to Libya, Sinai, Yemen, Nigeria, and other countries where Islamic State has taken root. Unfortunately, there are limitations to the military progress of the four main anti-ISIS ground forces. The Iraqi army, the YPG, the Iraqi Kurds, and the Syrian army all have advanced or won local victories because they were supported by intense airstrikes. ISIS knows that it will always lose if it fights it out in battles and sieges in which its fighters can be easily targeted. This is the lesson of the battle at Ramadi and at other fronts in Syria and Iraq over the past year. But ISIS has learned from its defeats. It did not commit large numbers of fighters to make a doomed last stand at Ramadi, Sinjar, Tal Abiyad, or Quayris Air Base east of Aleppo. Important though the Tal Abiyad crossing with Turkey was for the caliphate, there may have been only 25 fighters when it fell to the YPG. The U.S. said that, in the final stages of the fighting, ISIS had reduced its forces in the city to between 250 and 350 men, and most of these slipped away before the end. ISIS is reverting to guerrilla war, in which it can best employ the tactics of surprise attacks and ambushes by small, rapidly assembled forces. There is a reason why such tactics are likely to be particularly effective in the current war. ISIS is fighting numerically small armies that have an even more limited number of combat troops who can be deployed. At Ramadi, the Iraqi army used its Golden Division and its best units, but U.S. air power was crucial to success. The Iraqi army has some 50,000 men in five divisions, and these are of variable quality. The YPG claims to have similar number of troops, though the real figure is probably lower. The Iraqi Kurdish Peshmerga appears to have acted as a mopping-up force at Sinjar, where, again, ISIS withdrew rather than making a costly last stand. There is a further development in the fighting that will work in ISIS's favor. Anti-ISIS forces may be able to take territory, but they cannot necessarily hold it. As ISIS enemies advance, they will be operating more and more in Sunni Arab-populated areas, where the support for ISIS and hostility to non-Sunni or non-Arab forces will be greatest. This will be true for the Kurds and whatever their claims uh, to be non-sectarian for the Iraqi and Syrian armies. Communal hatreds are at such a pitch and in Iraq and Syria that occupation by a non-Sunni Arab armed force may provoke a reaction in favor of ISIS. 
The parallel with Afghanistan can be carried too far because ISIS has always given political and religious emphasis to holding territory in which it can rule and people can live by its variant of Islam. It has a real state and an administrative structure to defend. Its theological beliefs may be rigid, but its military strategy is fluid and changes rapidly to meet external changes. Despite its recent defeats, the caliphate is still a long way from being overcome. Well, that's Patrick Coburn, who is the author of The Rise of Islamic State, ISIS, and the New Sunni Revolution. And also in today's Counterpunch is a short article by uh, the excellent journalist Robert Fisk, who, of course, uh, lived in Lebanon for many years, still lives in the Middle East, and uh, whose book, Pity the Nation, is sort of the standard uh, English-language text for uh, the catastrophe that was the Lebanese Civil War. Uh, his piece, uh, dated January 4th, is entitled Saudi Arabia's Mad Head Choppers. I'll share that with you now. Uh, Saudi Arabia's binge of head choppings, 47 in all, including the learned Shia cleric Sheikh Namir Bakr al-Namir, followed by a Quranic justification for the executions, was worthy of ISIS. Perhaps that was the point. For this extraordinary bloodbath in the land of the Sunni Muslim al-Saud monarchy, clearly intended to infuriate the Iranians and indeed the entire Shia world, re-sectarianized a religious conflict which ISIS has itself done so much to promote. All that was missing was the video of the decapitations, although the kingdom's 158 beheadings last year were perfectly in tune with the Wahhabi teachings of the Islamic State, quote-unquote. Macbeth's blood will have blood certainly applies to the Saudis, whose war on terror, it seems, now justifies any amount of blood, both Sunni and Shia. But how often do the angels of God the most merciful appear to the present Saudi interior minister, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Nayef? For Sheikh Namir was not just any old divine. He spent years as a scholar in Tehran and Syria was a revered Shia leader of Friday prayers in the Saudi eastern province and a man who stayed clear of political parties but demanded free elections and was regularly detained and tortured, by his own account, for opposing the Sunni Wahhabi Saudi government. Sheikh Namir said that words were more powerful than violence. The authorities' whimsical suggestion that there was nothing sectarian about this most recent bloodbath on the grounds that they beheaded Sunnis as well as Shias, was classic ISIS rhetoric. After all, ISIS cuts the heads of Sunni apostates and Sunni Syrian and Iraqi soldiers just as readily as it slaughters Shias. Sheikh Namir would have got precisely the same treatment from the thugs of the Islamic State as he got from the Saudis, though without the mockery of a pseudo-legal trial which Sheikh Namir was afforded and of which Amnesty International complained. But the killings represent far more than just Saudi hatred for a cleric who rejoiced at the death of the former Saudi interior minister, Mohammed bin Nayef's father, Crown Prince Nayef Abdul Aziz Al Saud, with the hope that he would be, quote, eaten by worms and will suffer the torments of hell in his grave, close quote. Nimir's execution will reinvigorate the Houthi rebellion in Yemen, which the Saudis invaded and bombed this year in an attempt to destroy Shia power there. It has enraged the Shia majority in Sunni-ruled Bahrain, and Iran's own clerics have already claimed that the beheading will cause the overthrow of the Saudi royal family. 
It will also present the West with that most embarrassing of Middle Eastern problems, the continuing need to cringe and grovel to the rich and autocratic monarchs of the Gulf, while gently expressing their unease at the grotesque butchery which the Saudi courts have just dished out to the kingdom's enemies. Had ISIS chopped off the heads of Sunnis and Shias in Raqqa, especially that of a troublesome Shia priest like Sheikh Namir, we can be sure that David Cameron would have been tweeting his disgust at so loathsome an act. But the man who lowered the British flag on the death of the last king of this preposterous Wahhabi state will be using Weasel's words to address this bit of head chopping. However many Sunni al-Qaeda men have also just lost their heads, literally, to Saudi executioners, the question will be asked in both Washington and European capitals. Are the Saudis trying to destroy the Iranian nuclear agreement by forcing their Western allies to support even these latest outrages? In the obtuse world in which they live, in which the youthful defense minister who invaded Yemen intensely dislikes the interior minister, the Saudis are still glorying in the anti-terror coalition of 34 largely Sunni nations, which supposedly form a legion of Muslims opposed to terror. The executions were certainly an unprecedented Saudi way of welcoming in the new year, if not quite as publicly spectacular as the firework display in Dubai, which went ahead alongside the burning of one of the Emirates' finest hotels. Outside the political implications, however, there is also an obvious question to be asked, in the Arab world itself, of the self-perpetuating House of Saud. Have the kingdom's rulers gone bonkers? Robert Fisk writes for The Independent, where this column originally appeared, and I read it to you here today from the counterpunch.org website. Well, we're nearing the uh, end of the program, and of course Yazoo City Calling will be coming up uh, following Gray Matters. Dick Whaley will be back here next week uh, to join me for another half hour. Tex uh, and uh, Miles have uh, stood in as engineers. Miles has been interning all uh, this last semester. Uh, Andrew, our usual engineer, is uh, traveling. So uh, we'll see what crew is here next week. I mentioned to you last week uh, that it's well worth your time, even if you just pick it up at the newsstand, uh, to pick up a copy of Mad Magazine, not a traditional news source, But as many listeners are aware, uh, with the advent of the satirical news program such as The Daily Show and the uh, Stephen Colbert Report, uh, satire is often one of the best uh, ways, one of the meatiest ways, uh, and certainly one of the most uh, satisfying ways to get your news. In a world where current events seem as though they were made up by somebody going for a laugh, uh, satire is sometimes a... uh, Helpful antidote, at least, to help you choke reality down. And, of course, Mad Magazine ends the year with their 20 dumbest people events and things of 2015. Uh, Trump, of course, is number one on that list. I mentioned the Ben Carson thing, but there's uh, a number of worthy recipients of uh, satirical scorn, uh, including the uh, anti-vaccine hysteria and... uh, the Kentucky clerk who decided that uh, her law and her buddy God uh, outruled the Supreme Court. 
Because let's face it, there were some good things that happened in 2015, too, and the recognition of uh, equal rights for all regarding marriage uh, was a major breakthrough, and I think something that uh, many, if not most of our listeners, were uh, thrilled to finally see happen. And uh, as I say, we'll see what uh, sort of language and policies will come forward from uh, President Obama's executive action regarding uh, gun violence. Uh, more and more people have just had enough, and the numbers for accidental deaths and suicides tell the story. So as we go forward into the new year, uh, let's go out with one further final piece of music here. This is from a very interesting CD of Pakistani Kowali musicians working with Johnny Greenwood from Radiohead and an Israeli singer and musician, Shaya Ben Tzur. Uh, if these guys can work together through the, the common human language of music, uh, maybe there is a way forward for, uh, as President Nixon said, all the people of the world to be together in one way for, for a moment. So here we are in music. <laughs> 